Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales True Crime Volume 1 book, Tea and Sympathy, Martha Needle. Martha Needle was the wife and mother of three daughters, and then she wasn't. Her family succumbed to illnesses of the time and were all buried. But when Martha was caught red-handed trying to poison her prospective brother-in-law, Louis Junkin, the bodies of her three children and deceased husband were exhumed. The results would show that Martha Needle was one of the most treacherous, merciless poisoners in Australian history, and she met the noose for her troubles. Doesn't sound like a nice character. You know, I can't get a handle on Martha. I've gone through stages where I've sort of read she had a terribly hard childhood and I felt a bit sympathetic towards her. But then as the story's gone along, I've thought she just seems to be a cold-blooded murderer. So to take you back, Martha was working as a domestic. She was a young woman and she made a good marriage. Mm -hmm. The man she married was a carpenter, Henry Needle. He was 22, she was 17. So she'd survived a fairly poverty-ridden and abusive childhood and landed on her feet marrying him. Two years later, she had a daughter, Mabel, and that was quickly followed by another daughter, Elsie, and they left Adelaide and they settled in Richmond, Melbourne. Okay. So things were good. The neighbours said that they were well-matched and they seemed to get on, but some say that Henry was understood to be a bit of a jealous husband and Martha was quite an attractive woman, and I believe the drink probably didn't help. What, she was the drinker? No, he was a he drinker. Was drinker. Yeah, he was a drinker. There was some tension at home. Perhaps she felt stifled. Perhaps she wanted to go out more and he was too jealous. But supposedly she was seen out a lot more by herself. Okay. Little Mabel was three when she started to show signs of illness. Now, this is really interesting. You'd think that she'd knock off her husband first if she seriously wanted her independence. Yeah. But regardless, little Mabel was showing signs of illness and she was insured for £100. Insurance wasn't uncommon in those days for no, kids, though, was it? it wasn't. But that's more than $50,000 today. In the, the late 19th century and even early 20th century, a lot of families insured their children, and they did it because they couldn't afford burials. Mm. Childhood you know, mortality rates were fairly high in those days. So more than 70,000 children insurance policies existed around that early 1900s. It's a hell of a lot, isn't it? I'd yeah. love to know what it is today. I reckon it'd be next to nothing. Yeah, so it was just purely to cover the costs of a funeral. Exactly that. But it's interesting, the very first bill that was passed into law by the Federal Parliament was the Life Assurance Company's Bill. It was introduced by Ernest Groom, the member for the Darling Downs in 1904, and it was to regulate insurance of the lives of children under 10 years of age. Now, he said in his speech about it, that the general practice is for persons of the poorer classes to insure the lives of their children for about seven to eight pounds. Yep. So they could pay the funeral expenses, the burial expenses, and, and, and any outstanding medical expenses. So it was, as he said, it was done with self-respect and honest pride. In those days, the average cost of a funeral in Sydney was about £4, and in Melbourne was about £5. So 7 to £8 is going to cover it. OK, and you said that uh, little Mabel was insured for uh, equivalent of fifty grand today. £100. And why? So this is what Mr Groom said at the time, that suspicion falls on those families who insure their children for much more, unlimited amounts even. And this bill was to provide a safeguard against that. It came in after Mabel's death. Martha was paying the insurance, £100. Henry left to find work in Sydney, returned not long after. Tension and jealousy was growing between the couple. Uh, They'd now had one little child and one deceased. And she was often seen out by herself. The armchair detective would say, the writing might be on the wall for poor old Henry if he doesn't pull his head in. 
Anyway, Elsie was born, a new sister for May, a year later, so they now have the two daughters again. It's been four years since they lost a child. There's nothing one would think would be suspicious about that. Mm-hmm. It's now 1889 and Henry falls ill. The doctor was called for. Henry refused to have food that was prepared by Martha. His life was insured for 200 pounds. <laughs> a nice so about 100 sum. grand in today's dollars. Yeah, a lot of money. He could live quite handsomely on that. It didn't take long for poor old Henry to succumb to his so-called virus. And post-death, the doctor confirmed it was from inflammation of the liver and intestines and exhaustion from refusing to eat his, you know, caring wife's foods. Okay. He's, basically, they said his insides were eaten away. Wow. Keeping up appearances. So Martha's now an attractive, young, considerably wealthy widow <laughs> with two little daughters. So she collects his life insurance. This is, you know, where I to and fro on Martha. She's either very clever, very cunning, or a sympathetic figure because she collects his money and she only takes a third for herself to you know, keep her and the two daughters in what they need. The rest she puts into trust for the two daughters, Elsie 6 and May 3. Mm-hmm. It's for their future, so she hasn't really taken any money off her husband other than what she absolutely needs. It's all been left for the daughters. Yeah. So if they were looking at her with some suspicion, that was a very clever move. Martha's now 26 with a considerable purse. A sympathetic figure, lost one daughter and a husband, but not uncommon in that era, as you yeah. know. There was very little suspicion about any of this, and I guess because at that time there was a lot of deaths. Well, it was. Six-year-old Elsie now fell ill. Martha, her mother, stayed by her side the whole time as she clung to life for about three weeks. Her death was ruled as gangrious, stomatitis and exhaustion. So from a household of three children and a husband, it's now just Martha and little May. And one year later, five-year-old May dies. Tubercular meningitis, according to her death certificate. Interesting, the money that was held in trust for those little girls from their father's death goes to Martha. Surprise, surprise. Surprise. And Martha's now a still quite a young woman, under 30, widowed, childless, wealthy, attractive. And for some, a sympathetic figure. How horrendous to lose your husband and your three children. What grief. Could you imagine such grief? You have to wonder whether anybody's starting to get curious at this point. I'm always amazed they're not. But, again, she's a very clever woman. She kept up appearances and she spent most of that money on this elaborate family gravestone, huge right. big headstone. And she visited it regularly. She sat and prayed with her family. So you can imagine her sitting there in her black garment, mourning for the loss of her three children and her husband on this enormous stone that took up a lot of the funds that she received. And I think, why? That must have been an attempt at a show of innocence. At least ex- explanation. Because why would you? You know, like you're now comfortably off. Why would you put yourself in a financial position where you may still need to get a man yeah. or a trade for a woman in that era which may include teaching or nursing nursing to support yourself when you've got all that money so it's bizarre martha rallied of course and she uh she supplemented her income running a boarding house and interesting enough her boarders were two men that would both bring about her downfall so we're talking 1890 now yep and lewis junkin he's come from adelaide to commence his salary business in a two-storey building in 137 Bridge Road, Richmond, which is still there. <laughs> it's really interesting because, I mean, one of the reasons we write these stories is because they're about places that are still there now where other people have lived and, mm. and had their lives and we tell their stories. That's about two doors down from where I used to work when I lived in Melbourne. Isn't it amazing? It's and, bizarre. And how many times would you have passed it? Oh, hundreds. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it? And yeah. not had an inkling of any That's of the history that went on Louis there. saddlery business, yeah. which was long gone, I imagine. But, yeah, just down the road. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? I'm gathering that, uh, that Louis and uh, Martha become, to some degree or another, attached. Yes. So Louis already had a widow. Um, in the building because he only needed the front part for his business and he sublet the house to a widow who kept borders. And Martha 
ended up taking her role. Among her lodgers were Louis and his brother Otto, who was a carpenter. So she kept house for the two men, and it was a very quidil, happy household, supposedly. Louis was in love with her, and so was Otto. You know, you can see what's coming. But she only had eyes for Otto. He was a carpenter. Her first husband was a carpenter too. So romance began, you know, dinner dancing, time out with a new beau, and soon after Otto proposed. Either from jealousy or brother rivalry, Lou was subjected to the marriage. Now, he probably wouldn't have objected if she'd accepted his hand in marriage. Yeah. And uh, he had his supporters in the family. So the mother of the two men wrote to Martha and Otto, objecting on the basis of Martha's weak state of health. <laughs> I know. She's the only survivor out of five. So I, know. I don't think her health was ever in question. Anyway, so this rejection was not really Louis' best interest, as you can imagine. Soon he started to fall ill and he declined rapidly. He had similar symptoms to her other family members and he temporarily improved, which was interesting, when a relative arrived to care for him or feed him. But on Tuesday the 15th of May 1894, uh, he was eating a breakfast prepared by his beloved soon-to-be sister-in-law, Martha, (laughs) and died. The doctor, because it was a peculiar case, wanted to do post-mortem, but interesting, the family wouldn't allow it. Louis' death actually then brought the family to town. So a third brother, Herman, came along with the mother to settle... Um, this is from Adelaide. Yeah, to settle Louis' affairs. Yep. And they insisted Otto call off the wedding to Martha, you know, which wasn't a good move either. So she wasn't having it, basically. So she turned on the charm and the poison, <laughs> and she was serving tea and scones and jam to them all, and Herman immediately fell ill. This is so blatant. It's so blatant. But maybe, you know, and I often think, did she want to be caught or... Did she think that she could get away with it these days? Yeah, because whatever, you know, Herman's brother had could be hereditary or could be in the house or in the family. Yeah, her. Yeah, that's it. So the doctor was called and Herman was taken away to recover. But several days later, Herman revisited and he was served the same thing. She served him up some tea and scones, you know, as her guest. Yep. So if suspicion had eluded her after the death of Mabel, Henry, Elsie, May and Lewis, or Louis, Herman was going to be her undoing. So the doctor, having been called in twice now on the same matter, got suspicious and he called the police. Okay. They set a trap. Now, there's a few different versions of this, some that probably have been embellished with drama as time goes by. Well, this part's true. Herman said it himself at the trial. He agreed to go along and accept another afternoon tea or accept tea from her or luncheon. Some versions say he asked her to prepare lunch and the police were waiting outside the door and he handed the plate over to them and they ran off and tested it. Others say that he just had the cup of tea and he blew a whistle and the police charged in and, and took it. But his simplified account came at the trial, which he basically said, he dropped in, she asked if he'd lunched, he said he had not and consented to partake of some. He took a cup of tea, handed it to the detectives who were outside the room. When the detectives asked Martha if she had poison in the house, she said she didn't think so. And then they found numerous bottles of poison and rat poison, most of it containing arsenic. She was taken off to the city watch house, but she actually asked Herman on her departure, did he do this to her? The results of the teacup, you'll be surprised, contained 10 to 57 grams of arsenic acid, but tea from Martha's teacup contained nothing. And I gather 10 to 57 grains of arsenic acid is enough to do you considerable damage. Yeah, especially if you're going to have it a few times. Again, it didn't serve Herman or his family well to protest about his brother's pending nuptials, but anyway, there you go. Now, noting the similarity between the death of Martha's family members and Louis and, of course, Herman's poisoning, they decided they'd exhume and test the bodies, and they did. And all were found to have traces of arsenic in them. And again, isn't it interesting that even though uh, they all had different 
diseases or, or body failures or whatever mm. on their death certificates. Mm. They all had arsenic in the system. Yeah, interesting. Just digressing here, this is what angers me so much. I don't understand her, you know, and it's awful to say as women because we know women are serial killers as well, but if it was just about money, once she bumped Henry off, the first husband, she had money. Mm. So how could you so cold-bloodedly and you know the old maternal instinct comes out then kill your three little girls yeah i can't get my head around that and a lot of listeners won't be able to either you know that's where i come unstuck i think you know i can understand if he was maybe brutal and jealous and perhaps a love had gone cold but those three little girls yeah and she had uh, i mean he he was insured for you know something like two hundred thousand dollars in today's money she spent most of that on the memorial yeah so she could have had the money. It makes me think that, you know, I hate to say the old word evil, but that she was cold-blooded. So what happened then? Okay, so bodies were found with arsenic in them, except for the very first little girl who died, because it had been too long. Yeah. Uh, they couldn't... Mabel. Yeah, they couldn't work out with Mabel then. It was too badly decomposed. Mm. She then was taken to trial. It lasted all of three days, so well, no mucking around then. No. The courthouse was packed with a large contingency of females... The government analyst spoke about the exhumation of the Needle family and said there was undoubtedly poison in the remains of each of these persons and varying amounts of arsenic. Henry Junkin was present, Louis and Otto's brother, to give his version of events. Mm. And an interesting one, Stanley Setford, a carpenter who was one of Martha's boarders there, stated that he lived with Mrs Needle for two years and in regard to the rat poison, that rats were very troublesome. And last Christmas he found five or six dead rats under the flooring boards and also had to shoot some in the pantry. <laughs> I'm here to shoot the rats in your pantry. So consequently there's grounds for having that rat poison and it might not have been used for any other measure. Uh. Martha pleaded not guilty, but she was found guilty and she was sentenced to death by hanging. So for nine years, which I find incredible, she'd been on this killing spree mm. and at last her reign was over. But you know what's interesting, Otto. You know, you think after Otto had lost a brother had another brother almost poisoned, hearing of her treachery, that he might write her off. But he didn't. His, his loyalty sort of, I'm not sure it was love. His caring for her actually didn't waver right up to the end. And so what was his thinking? I mean, what did he think was the explanation for what she'd done? Well, he regularly visited her in jail and he wrote to his mother and said that he, he hoped she'd proved to be insane and therefore not responsible for her misdeeds. In his mind, that would be easier than conceiving that his fiancée was a cold-blooded murderer. Yeah, it was was some justification for what she'd done. She, however, thought that by his loyalty that he continued to believe she was innocent of his brother's death. Reverend Scott, who was a chaplain at the jail, tried to talk Otto out of that. He tried to tell him that he should go in and just clear it up so that she can then bear her soul, prepare for death, ask for God's forgiveness and so forth. But Otto was reluctant to do that because he thought she might go to her death then with feeling more alone and a heavier heart, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? But she believed until her death that Otto thought she was innocent of the deaths. Anyway, so death came pretty promptly after that. They didn't muck around in those days. You didn't get long on death row. So within a month on the morning of 22nd of October, 1894, she was hanged at the Melbourne jail. She was 30 years old. And her last words, I have nothing to say. Mm. What happened to um, her estate? There must have been something left of that money if she hadn't spent it all on on the memorial. Yeah, that's right. Well, she actually bequeathed it to Otto, but supposedly the law states that property of condemned felons has to go to the Crown. Oh, okay. But it's believed that Otto did receive it, so she had um, some land in South Australia, her life insurance for £50, some jewellery, and I guess whatever was left from the other bounties, if yeah, anything. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, it, she wrote this letter to Otto on her final morning, and she said, in a few hours I shall be free of all sorrows, but you, dear Otto, 
Just live on for a time. Try and bear up under the very sad blow. When you receive this, you can think of me as being in a happy home with my loved ones, waiting and watching for you. I know, dear Otto, that you will get ready for that happy meeting with us all. <laughs> and did Otto live on? He did live on. Otto became quite renowned. He got over Martha. Yeah, not surprised. <laughs> he married, had six children, and he lived a long life. So if you find yourself in Melbourne, you can see his work. In 1918, he formed a partnership with Lawrence Hansen, and they built some really iconic structures, including the Collingwood Football Club Grandstand. Oh, I've been there. Yep. The National Bank in Collins Street. Okay. The Port Authority Building and the Sun Theatre. Thanks to Martha not killing Otto, our architectural heritage is all the better for it. So what happened with the memorial? It's still there? Their grave's not in good condition. We found in Burundara General Cemetery, which is in High Street Q. Yep. Martha's grave's not so easy to track. It was a practice then to bury the condemned on prison grounds. Yeah. So her grave was marked with a small plaque bearing her initials and the date of execution. This is old Melbourne jail? That's old Melbourne jail. So, of course, when it was decommissioned, Martha and other prisoners were exhumed and reinterred at Pentridge Prison. And then during the 1930s, to cut costs during the Depression, the Brighton City Council built bluestone walls to protect the local beaches from erosion, yeah. and those stones were taken from the outer walls of the old Melbourne jail. Yeah. So some of those stones include the plaques, which said, you know, the initials of... Yeah, they carved the initials into the rock on the outer wall, and they went away when they took the outer wall away. Mm. So there you go, if you're out there looking for them, um, and, and surprisingly they were found again, supposedly. So they used to face inwards at the prison, but now on the seawall they faced outwards. Over time, sand drifted and covered them. But supposedly, I read that Martha's Park was rediscovered near Wellington Street. Yeah, so, I think it's disappeared again. But uh, uh, anyway, we'll give a bit worth, of, worth going to have a look for, perhaps. Oh, go and spend your Sunday looking for that. <laughs> we put a bit of detail on the book as well. But she's got a death mask at the old Melbourne jail. Yeah. Now, I want to finish up this with a, a word of sympathy to the victims because, you know, often we tell these stories and we forget the impact on the victims. So I found a very interesting article. It was written one week after Martha's execution that reminded us of the suffering of Otto's brother, Lewis, who died at her hand. And her children and her husband died in a similar way. This is it. The sick man lay in bodily torture caused by the slow operation of the poison she had given him. His mouth was in so horrible a state that nourishment could no longer be administered through nature's ordinary channel. His condition was such as might have caused relentment in the breast of a fiend, but the fiend who carried him his physics and who with smiles of feigned compassion smoothed his pillow knew no such pity. And that was our poisoner, Martha Nino. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road tour. <laughs>